Welcome to Behind the Curtain, L.A. Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. Good evening. Welcome to all of you early birds. Thrilled to see you. We have a virtually sold-out performance tonight, so uh, you'll have a lot of company, but you'll know more than they will because you have, will, have, will have come to the beginning. Uh, very happy to see you for uh, this our uh, final production of this season, La Traviata, which, of course, is one of the most popular um, operas. I'm going to ask this question later when there's really everybody here. Well, first of all, how many of you have actually seen La Traviata before? All right, that doesn't surprise me. How many of you have never seen La Traviata? Excellent. My remarks will be particularly uh, for you. How many people here have never seen an opera? Is there anybody here that has never seen an opera? Don't be able... Yeah, thank you. Okay. The reason I want to say that, I'm so happy to see you tonight. And uh, bear with me because when, when it's full, it, it, it fills up a, 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 in a little while. I'm going to ask that question because it just so happens that La Traviata was the first opera I ever saw and it changed my life. So I hope to change your life tonight in a positive way. I, <laughs> I could say that it changed my life. So since my age is a, is a matter of public record, I could tell you this. I, I was 11 years old, it was November of 1961 that I saw it in Queens where I was growing up. Uh, Queens, by the way, is on the Atlantic Ocean. It's on the other side. It's in a city called New York, which um, in the fall of 1971, for the, I conducted a concert performance of the second act, that's 10 years later, um, in July of 1975 at Aspen. I uh, conducted the whole opera for the first time during the summer. Uh, and there I uh, met my future wife, whose birthday it happens to be today. Uh, I don't think she's here. She's usually late. Yeah. So. <laughs> Anyway, I'll tell you that later again. Okay, it'll come up in the... Um, and in 1977, fall of 1977, I conducted a whole run of that at the Metropolitan Opera. And since that time, uh, I made my debut here at Los Angeles Opera. It was the first opera I conducted here in 2006. By now, I've conducted... Um, this is the 41st performance of the fifth production of Traviata I've done. And I am approaching very soon in August at the Salzburg Festival, my 500th performance of ever work of Verdi in the form of Louisa Miller, one of my favorite operas. So it's come 500 is on its way. Now, uh, don't look at it now, but as always, I write a text. It's in your program, but you only get the short version in the program because there isn't enough room for me in the program because there's so many other important things in there. So, But you can see the full version on the website if you go to our website and you can find your way through the jungle of details and things, which I can't. Um, it's, it's, the, it's, it's in there somewhere. So, I'm going to take it for granted that you know that Giuseppe Verdi is one of the... Uh, most transcendent geniuses of Western civilization. I think so. Um, there are some people who look down their noses at opera. I'm not interested in their opinion. Uh, there are some, uh, there are some particularly uh, who love German opera and therefore look down their noses at all of German, uh, at Italian opera. I'm not interested in their opinion, although I argue back with them. Um, this opera is perhaps the most beloved of all, not just of all Verdi operas, but perhaps one of the most beloved operas. Um, in the world uh, for people who sort of like opera or who drop in on opera so occasionally. This is one of the, well, this is one of those operas that just everybody seems to reverberate on a universal way. Verdi, when asked later in his life what were his best works, he says, speaking as a professional, I would say Rigoletto, 
but speaking as an amateur, I would say La Traviata. Now, there was nothing amateur about Verdi, but I think what he meant by that was that his heart and soul is in this opera in a very special way. Now, um, it was pr produced in 1853, March the 6th, 1853. That meant that he was exactly uh, 40 years old when he produced it. He was already very, very well known. The amazing thing is that he had, in, in January of 1853, he had just premiered another opera known as Il Trovatore. Amazing that these works were written virtually simultaneously. They are very different in their different ways. If you've seen the Marx Brothers laugh, but don't take that that seriously. Il Trovatore is a much more important work than that. But Trovatore and Traviata were produced at the same time. Verdi was getting more and more interested in contemporary subjects, and this is a very contemporary subject. It was written, the novel by the French novelist Alexandre Dumas, Fils, that's the son, who's not considered all that important in French literature, but his father, Alexandre Dumas, Pair was a big, 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 big deal. So, but this is the son. He had a love affair um, with a lady. This is probably the story of that love affair. Of course, it's been doctored up as most stories. Remember that we've talked about it many times. Uh, opera is not fact. Uh, opera is not literature. It's not the work that was the original work. It's the work that it became when the composer uh, molded it to his or her own needs. So this was first a novel, then a play called La Dama o Camillas, that the Lady of the Camellia. That is a flower. She was famous for having worn um, a camellia all the time. More on that shortly. It takes place basically in the late 1840s. Verdi wrote in 1853, which means instead of going back to ancient sources and going far away, going back to the Middle Ages, going, he took something that was freshly published, freshly popular. He um, apparently saw the play while in, in Paris, and then he turned it into an opera. Uh, I think it's safe to say that it certainly surpasses the original, both the, the novel and the play, and he, he turned it into a international, or I should say, uh, universal universal masterpiece. Um, okay, so Wagner was interested in myths, you know that. He liked uh, that's what he believed was the best conduit for operatic or musical drama. Verdi usually b believed in reality, real people, real situations. Um, but Verdi was also not completely contrary to the idea of taking a, a myth uh, in a more general sense, symbolic sense. This is a myth um, that is, the myth is that there's a beautiful courtesan uh, or a woman of easy virtue doomed to an early death and she falls in love with a young man of limited resources, gives up her life of luxury to live with him, and then sacrifices her love for his, or in this case, his family's. So this is has a sort of a it will take on a sort of a mythical um, dimension to it, as most operatic works do. One famous Italian musicologist said that Italian opera is basically one myth told over and over again, and it is the Romeo and Juliet story. There are young lovers, and they are, there is an obstacle that will prevent their, their enjoying and enjoying a full life. Um, and that is a myth of a sort. That's the Romeo and Juliet myth. This is the myth of the woman who has given her life partially to free love, 
and partially to devoted love and what that and all of that means. And there's a second part of that myth that is uh, basically there's a hostile society, uh, worldly or perhaps bourgeois values that are represented in this case by the father of the young man who is in love with our heroine, which renders true or some sort of forbidden love untenable. In other words, if you're not living in conformity to society's values, however they are defined at the time and in the place, you may have a great love affair, but you're going to have trouble. And trouble, of course, is what dramatists love, and trouble is what Italian opera composers love, because if you don't have conflict, you don't really have the material for all of the emotions that are going to be, going to be expressed uh, through the music. Now, Alexandre Dumas' uh, Fils had a, a great model for this mythical type of story, and it was written uh, in the previous century by uh, a priest by the name of Abbé Prévost. He lived from 1697 to 1763, so he's a full hundred years b before any of this happened. He wrote a, a novel called Manon Lescaut. Many of you may know it from the two famous operas, one by Massenet and one by Puccini. That are, and this is the same story. A young, beautiful woman arrives from the country with no means of, and has to work on the street, pleasing mostly men, uh, on a nightly basis in order to make a living. Of course, polite bourgeois society has always condemned these women. But I think we take a very different look today at this and realize that these, are, these women are working and they are working with what the only thing that they have to do. So we have a, I think we have a far more humane and broad view of, I guess they're called sex workers now, but there were all sorts of terms, uh, you know, uh, prostitute, uh, but, and many euphemistic terms. And Verdi employed euphemistic terms, but there's no question who our heroine is and what she does. And that in itself, is a revolutionary, bold, daring move on the part of Giuseppe Verdi to put that in front of the Italian public. And he was in that type of mood. He wrote three works that are called the middle period masterpieces because, of course, he lived a very long life. And those middle, ma uh, middle period masterpieces are, in order, Rigoletto, Il Trovatore, and La Traviata. And in each one, the protagonist is something that was considered unfit to be put on a stage. Rigoletto, for those of you who remember him, is a hunchback, crippled dwarf who is, uh, who is a court jester. They were considered subjects for comedy, for the circus. The uh, royal families of Europe had dwarfs, as you can know from the Velázquez paintings, if you are a fan of Spanish, Spanish art. They were the ones who amused the king. To put a dwarf on the stage as a melodramatic, complex personality was a revolutionary step. And right after that, he put on Il Trovatore, which is about, centered around the life of a Roma woman, formerly called gypsies, which was and is to some degree still a despised race in Europe making her the center of the subject, not just decoration, was also revolutionary. And the final piece was La Traviata, about a woman who used the euphemism that you like, but she was, in essence, employed as a prostitute. And, most important, she will show the audience that she, in fact, is the most enlightened 
person in the opera, the one with the broadest soul, the one who understands love, sacrifice, sympathy, empathy. Plus, she is a tragic character because, as many people were suffering from tuberculosis, she will die at 23 years old. Now, that part of the story is true. There was a woman, and that woman becomes Violetta. We call her Violetta. Now, La Traviata was also a not Verdi's first choice for the... Um, for this work, it was, was coming to something called Love and Death. I think Woody Allen picked up on that many years later. The, the, the censors in Venice didn't like that, and so they insisted he change it and became La Traviata. What does that mean? It is, well, tra, uh, Traviare is to either to become corrupted or to be led astray, and I think that's the idea. Morally, this woman, because it's feminine, La Traviata, is a woman who has been led astray. And so that is what covers the story. Her name is Violetta, which, of course, is the color of the traditional Roman Catholic Church, of, of, of not just of Lent, but also for funerals in the, old, um, in the old tradition. And so Violetta already has an implication of the destiny of this young woman who is going to die young. The real woman was named Alphonsine Duplessis, and she was known as Marie. She lived from 1924 to 1847. She is called Marguerite Gautier in the... Uh, novel and in the play. And as I just mentioned, Verdi changed her, her name to Violetta. Uh, and she is famous for wearing camellias, as I explained to you. Now, a detail that is very important. She wore white camellias for most of the month, let's say out of a month, all but five days. And on those four or five days, however long it was appropriate, she wore a red camellia. So the red camellia meant, I, I'm to be left alone. Uh, tonight, don't come, don't come around. The white camellias, of course, were a welcome sign. So that's where that's the genesis. And you will probably have seen Greta Garbo uh, perform this. Many movies have been made. Greta Garbo is perhaps um, the greatest of all of those. Now, who are the characters? I'm going to re-remind uh, you of, I tell you almost every time, but I'm going to tell you again because it's always funny, George Bernard Shaw, who... Uh, was not particularly a fan of Italian opera. So the Italian opera it has a formula, and it's basically this. The soprano wants to make love to the tenor. The tenor wants to make love to the soprano, and the baritone doesn't want them to. <laughs> Funny as it is, it's also very applicable. Now, this opera is no difference. You know who the heroine is, and you know she's in love. Why? Because she's a soprano, because that was the formula. You went to the, that's what you went to the opera to hear. And our Violetta, of course, is that soprano. The tender's name is Alfredo. He's in love with her, and he is the son of a, a people of modest means from the uh, provinces, I think, Tours of, uh, of France. He's come to Paris, and he's fallen in love with her. So you've got those two. And who is the baritone that does not want them to be together is Alfredo's father, who's known as Germont. Now, he's going to come to visit Violette at some point and said, you can't hang around with my son anymore because you're ruining my family. And so you have to give him up. And she, of course, fights right back. She says, I'm in love. I'm not giving him up. But he works on her gradually. And this is the central scene of the opera. He convinces her by explaining his predicament. And he convinces her to abandon Alfredo, much against her will. She, knowing that her days are numbered and she wants to spend every day of her life with her great love. How does he do it? 
he puts it on the basis of family. Alfredo has a sister. That sister needs to marry a fine young man who has an income, by the way, that's implied. And he, she can't do that, as it's known by everybody in our area that her brother is hanging out with a prostitute. So please cut it short now. We, I want you to leave him so that we can go back there. Alfredo's sister can get married, and he can return to tour and be a happy man. He, you will not be happy, and he talks her into it. And that is the tragedy. So she writes a letter. She lies to Alfredo and just basically says, I'm going back to my old life, and there's the tragedy. Of course, Alfredo, as he should, and as he's a tenor, reacts violently, and one thing will lead to another. But the important and the salient fact is that she makes the sacrifice for him, loves him until her death, and they will be reconciled only, as will the father only. I see some people drying their eyes already because this is a very tearful story. You're, you're allowed to cry. You're expected to cry at this opera. So uh, have your hankies ready. The crux of this matter is the sacrifice that she makes for love. And uh, though he understands only at the end, and the father understands at the end that he's basically committed a terrible error. The whole opera takes place in nine months, basically. The uh, first act uh, is in September. The second act is in January, and the third act is in February. So it is her last It is her last six years. Now, there are a lot of other coincidental uh, characters around. You're going to, we're going to be at two parties, one right at the beginning. This is the Society of Paris, you're going to see. And you're going to see it again in the um, second part of Act Two. Uh, she has a friend, her name is Flora. Flora does the same thing Violetta does. Okay, uh, she has a maid, Anina. She does not do what uh, what uh, what Violetta does. She takes care of uh, Violetta, and she's very uh, she's very devoted and faithful. There are several young. There are several men in the picture. Three, to be exact. Four. There's a friend of Alfredo. His name is Gaston. He's a viscount. There's a Baron uh, Dufol who who is presently the man who is paying for Violetta. He's keeping Violetta at the moment. Now that changes, and he's an irascible, and you will have no sympathy for him. Um, there's a Marchese, this Marquis uh, is also at certain point romantically involved with Flora. And there's a doctor, uh, the doctor is, uh, is Violetta's doctor. Okay. Um, there's a chorus, the chorus is almost exclusively drawn uh, from Par uh, Parisian society. Now, I just want to mention that the original uh, Marie de Duplessis uh, had many lovers, some of them famous, Théophile Gautier, the writer Jules Janin, Franz Liszt at a certain point. Um, so she was not, she was not a, a, a little number. She was a big deal for a very brief time in Parisian society. Um, there's also a man who is keeping her, Count Stackelberg, and this is a trick question, but if anybody can answer them, please write me the answer and I will, um, I'll call you up and congratulate you and give you a hearty handshake, as uh, W.C. Fields used to talk about. Um, there's a man who is probably present in the, one of these parties, if not both of these parties, who was also present at another, in another Verdi opera, he is not identified in the opera, in either opera, but he probably was present in another opera of Verdi in the historical context. That's really vague, but good luck, all right? <laughs>
Uh, when I was posed that question, I couldn't answer it either. But when I was told what the answer was, it was fascinating. Two completely different operas of Verdi. And I'm not even sure Verdi knew who he was. But it's most likely, it's definite that he was in the other one. It's most likely he was also um, present in Violetta's, at Violetta's parties. Okay, now the music. The opera is based, uh, the prelude, which is short and is a minor masterpiece in itself, is going to uh, put the whole drama out in front of us right away. And what is the drama? What is the main subject of this drama is, first of all, the presence and the uh, sword hanging over, swinging over Violetta, death. So you're going to hear the premonition of death right at the beginning. Um, and then there is going to be the two sides of Violetta, the frivolous courtesan member of Par Parisian society, and there's going to be the tragic Violetta of authentic love. It's going to be expressed in various ways. Love is going to be expressed in uh, tempi with three beats in a bar. So if you've studied music, you know what that is, three beats in a bar, one, two, three, three, four, three, eight. Sometimes there's 12, eight, that means one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, four times. Most of the love story is going to be told to us in that kind of tempo and rhythm. That is interesting because Verdi rarely does that so systematically as he does in this opera, which means that everything that is in four, 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 one, two, three, four, or that could be four, four quarters, four eighth notes, usually has something to do with the obstacle to that love, whether it be a person, an event, or the great obstacle, of course, is going to be death. So the first thing we're going to hear in the prelude is the premonition of death. This magnificent introduction. The use of the high violins also gives a sense of heaven or something supernatural. Verdi takes two themes from the opera itself and presents them in the prelude and plays them off each other because he's telling us these are the two central themes. You'll hear this music again at the beginning of the last act when Violetta is in her bed on her, what will be her deathbed, on the last day of her life. So you're going to get it back again in act, act two. You don't, you don't know what it is right now, but nevertheless, he sets the tone for the tragedy. And when we get to the last act, we're going to understand exactly what he meant by this. Now there's an important theme, and this theme is a melody, and I know most of you are going to recognize it. One of Verdi's great melodies. This is the melody that is A, associated with the true and authentic Violetta, the Violetta in love, and also of her great sacrifice. It will be drawn from the second act at the moment that she... Sorry about that. That's Maria Callas there. This is the moment that she renounces... She's 
bids farewell to Alfredo because she knows what she has just decided to do. He does not. Listen to the prelude. And listen to the second act. Now let's go back to the prelude. And now theme two, which is theme two of the love symbol of the love of Violetta and Alfredo. Now that's Placido Domingo. Now, listen to the similarity between Amami Alfredo and Di quell'amor, quell'amor, che palpito. Here is the love theme. And the renunciation of that love. That's Ah, Mami Alfredo, that's the renunciation. And that's the love theme. Now there's another famous part you'll know. It's Violetta's famous Sempre Libera, Always Free, where she espouses her philosophy of freedom. Now listen to this. You hear the cellos playing the love theme, but listen carefully in the background. You can hear the violins flitting around. This expresses the dual personality of Violetta. The Violetta of love, true love, authentic love, and the Violetta of the, uh, of the superficial life of Paris. And this is the end of the prelude. You hear them playing off each other. And here's the superficial Violetta and her superficial life. And the prelude is going to die away. It's not a prelude that you applaud. It sets up the mood. And you hear those, as those violins disappear, that is Violetta's life disappearing. Both the true love and the superficial life that she led in Paris. And then the curtain comes up. And this raucous music, brusque and wild, is a party in Paris. So Verdi loves this. He sets the tone, and then he right away cancels it, because we've got to get there. We've been told where we're going with the prelude, but we have to get there. And that's the opera. He just did the same thing in Rigoletto. This is the prelude. He shows you the somber, serious nature of this opera.
And then he erases it with another court with this dance music. So that's Rigoletto. This is La Traviata. The party's in full swing. And to the sound of salon music, Alfredo is introduced to Violetta, and it all starts there. And in no time, it's time for a toast. And the Baron, who is, of course, the present lover of Violetta, is asked to make a toast, but he's in no mood to do so because he already doesn't like this young upstart who has just showed up. So, Alfredo, also because he's the leading tenor, gets to start this. Now, this you all know. Notice that it's in three. One, two, three, one, two, three, one. One, two, three. Okay, so it's, we know it's about love. First, Alfredo. And that's our general director and beloved Placido Domingo. And she answers in turn. Exactly the same music. It's already a sort of flirtation that's starting. And then there's a third time. And then everybody sings together. And then there's more dance music waltzes in the next room. So everybody goes going out to dance. But Violetta's not well. So she has to stay behind. Alfredo, of course, who knows that she's ill, stays there, and it's also his chance to introduce himself in a more familiar manner. And they're going to do it to this incredible scene, to, to this uh, jolly music in the background. They're going to talk business. Now you hear because he keeps, he has, he interrupts himself. What are those rests about? He's shy. His heart is beating. He's not used to doing this. But he gets his uh, courage and he finally comes out with... This is the second love theme. The symbol will become a symbol and will be repeated often in the opera of Violetta and Alfredo. Her answer is flippant. You know, if you're serious, I wouldn't, I wouldn't hang around here because I won't be. There she is. Now, you remember the violins in the prelude? This is very close to that phrase that was in the prelude. All right? Now, nevertheless, she's impressed 
Everybody leaves for the night, and she sings. Now, I want you to notice that un, du, felice, one, two, three, one, two, three. And she answers, one, one, two, three, just like that. It's all in three. It's also in F major. He seems to favor the key of F major or sometimes F minor to express what's going on in this love of this love that's growing. And here she is in three, also singing with interruptions. Ah, for lui. Not because she's shy, but because she's moved and she's she's she is finding this new emotion. She doesn't. She's never felt loved like this before. So, so you hear it's in the minor key. And she interrupts herself. Verdi used that technique quite a number of times, most famously in Rigoletto, the soprano caro nome. There it is, you see, interrupted from emotion. She could have sung, ah, forse lui, che l'anima, but her emotion, her beating heart, prevents her. Ah, forse lui, che. That's, that's Verdi's way of expressing that. Well, she eventually moves out of F minor into F major. And she sings the love theme. Now she's in F major, but she's still in three. One, two, three, one. But then she says, this is all nonsense. I'm not going to be loved. I'm hanging, I'm sticking in with my love. She says, povera donna. Povera donna is a, is a double meaning word. It means that, well, as you say, pobrecita, you say, oh, poor thing. You know, povera donna, I'm a poor woman. But it also means a woman of compromised virtue. And Verdi will take that theme and he will use it to comic effect at the end of his life in Falstaff. But then she says, this is all nonsense, follie. And she says, povera donna, povera donna, sola, alone, abandonata, abandoned, in this populated desert that they call Paris. That line was almost surely created by Verdi because there's a letter in which he refers to Paris. He had a very ambivalent relationship to Paris, and he didn't like it, and that probably was written directly by, by Verdi himself. So, then we get the negation of serious love. We get sempre libero, always free, in this very famous excerpt. That's Maria Callas, of course. And at the end of the act, we hear, if we listen carefully, Alfredo. Singing what? More palpito. It's fast now. One, two, three, one, two, three. But it's still in three. Now, fast forward to the second act. They are living in the country, 
blissfully, it seems, until Alfredo finds out that actually Violetta is having to sell all of her belongings and property in order to maintain them. Um, and then the father comes in. Now, the scene, the duet with the father, the scene with the father is uh, a work of genius. And from beginning, I wish I had the time to go through it in detail because it is not a duet uh, in the traditional sense where one person sings a melody, and then the other one sings the same melody, and then they both sing the same melody slowly, and then they have a fast part where one of them sings a melody, and the other one sings the same melody, and then they sing the same melody, and then they have a little bit at the end. Nothing like it. Every section is a development or a departure from the previous section. The, the father will start out with this, and I'm going to race through this to, make, to give you the overall picture. He's going to describe the sister of Alfredo, saying that she's pure as an angel, designed to be, of course, a contrast to Violetta. When he corners her, she acts like a trapped animal. She says, you don't know what you're asking me to give him up. So she violently reacts to him. So he tries another argument. You're beautiful now, and you're young. But what's going to happen when you get old and you can't be married because you, you cannot be married? You're not going to have children. You're going to have nothing. And you know, young men and all men are actually not that dependable, and he will probably go off with another woman. This really hits her, because of course, she knows men as none other. And she says, grandio, good God. And Germont knows he has made the point. And she says, this, this is the tragedy, this is my fate. But for the woman who is lost, Finally, she says in this beautiful page, tell the young woman, that is the sister of Alfredo, she gives him a locket and she says, tell the young woman when I'm gone that there is a angel in heaven praying for her. So this is her, her re renunciation. Also with three beats. One, two, three. One, two, three. So if it's about love, it has three beats. He says, weep, weep, my poor dear. Now he seems to be developing sympathy. He's not going to give in, but he's developing sympathy, and she for him. Then she says, in minor key, in four, not in three, Moro, why? I will die because I will die of a broken heart. So again, we're in four because we're talking about the, uh, the sacrifice. She says, give me strength, heaven, to write this letter. She does it to the same motive that Rigoletto sang La Maledizione, the curse. And as he's all, Verdi has already uses a solo woodwind, a clarinet, 
while she's writing, she doesn't sing a melody, she just writes, but the clarinet tells us everything we need to know. The moment she says farewell to Alfredo, which you've already heard, the father shows up and sings a rather insipid but beautiful aria in four, saying, come back to the provinces, come back to your home. There you will be happy, there you will be loved. But Alfredo is only thinking about Violetta and he sees the letter that she has written. She's gone to the party. He reacts jealously, forcefully. I'm going to avenge myself. And back to. And then we go to the party in Paris. Violetta's going to be there. She's going to go there with the Baron, but Alfredo's going to show up because he's going to confront her, and the father is going to sh come okay, as well. So you get yourself a little bit of a Parisian ballet now. The party's in full swing. You get... Here they are, dressed up as Roma women, as gypsies. Zingarelle, they're called. This is a characteristic piece. It has nothing to do with the drama. It's there to amuse you. Now, in 1975, in Aspen, uh, my eye was drawn to one of those Zingarelle who was singing there. And there's this beautiful young woman, and now, after many years, she's my wife. And it's her birthday. And then the boys pretend to be matadors, and they sing this. Alfredo shows up and he plays cards. He challenges the Baron to first to cards. You can hear the shuffling of the cards in that. This is in three. One, two, three, one, two, three, very fast. It's in minor key. It's in F minor, the key, F, the key of love. So you see the detail, the uh, absolute incredible organization of this opera is something that is little appreciated because the melodic genius and the emotions are so inspired that we barely notice all of this. Violetta laments in F minor. A second time and a third time. But Alfredo calls everybody in and he insults her by taking all the winnings from the card game and he throws them at her in a horrible act. Everybody's shocked. His father comes in and he's shocked. And he says, this is worthy of contempt. Anybody who insults a woman in this manner, you are not acting like my son. She sings of her humiliation in three. One, two, three, one, two, three. It's a deeply touching moment. Everybody sings. 
the act comes to an end. It's the famous concertato, obligatory in Italian opera, somewhere midway in the opera. It gives you a sense of the finale. I've run out of time, if I could only get to the end of Act 3. But you know what's going to happen in Act 4, but follow how Verdi so uh, brilliantly constructs everything. I think you will be convinced that this is one of the greatest operas in the world. And for those of you who, have just, who came in late, I recounted that this was the very first opera I saw when I was 11 years old, and it changed my life, and you see what happened to me. And I hope, if, you're, if you are coming for the first time to this opera, or to any opera, I hope that I change your life in a positive way. Thank you for coming. You've been listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thanks, and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.